book of Romans was written by a man named Paul. And Paul, uh, also known as Paul the Apostle, he was a man that didn't know Christ. He didn't know Jesus. And as a matter of fact, he was very oppositional towards Jesus and, and, and Jesus' followers. Uh, but one day, he was on his road to do some uh, deeds, some, some works against the church. He, he had a plan, and it wasn't really good. And God encountered him on his way to do those things. And uh, Paul fell bef before the presence of God, was humbled, gave his life to Christ. And uh, from then on, Paul realized that it was his call and responsibility uh, to not only magnify the name of Jesus, but to help plant churches and lead churches throughout the Mediterranean region. So Paul wrote a whole collection of letters uh, to many different churches in the New Testament. You can find those. And uh, one of those letters was Rome, uh, uh, Romans, and it was written to the church in Rome. Now, Paul didn't actually plant the church in Rome, but he did, as a church leader, as a church father, want to help uh, the church at Rome really gain some clarity about some things that they were dealing with. So this was less of a corrective letter, like some of his other ones were, and really more of, of something where he wanted to bring clarity to the, to, to the church, to help the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles were simply people who were not Jews that were in the church, uh, Jews and Gentiles, to sort through some of the disagreements they were having in regards to these foundational Christian doctrines. Now, that word doctrine, it definitely sounds a little churchy. Um, doctrine simply means teaching. So Paul's, his goal is like, hey, I want to bring better clarity to you and your understanding about these foundational Christian truths that I've been teaching and that others have been teaching. And really one of the things that we're excited about in this series is to do the same for you. I know it's Pastor Jordan's heart to ensure that you guys know what you believe and why you believe it. And uh, we all agree that, that this series is going to be a really good tool by which to help accomplish that, to bring you clarity about these foundational Christian doctrines. A couple other reasons we're excited about this series, uh, we're doing small groups that actually are being paired with the series. So what we're preaching on Sunday morning, we're then going and discussing that in our small groups. So I was sitting around the table with like seven guys uh, this past Wednesday talking about what was preached last Sunday from Romans chapter two. And we had an incredible conversation. And we're going to continue to do that week by week over the remainder of this series through the end of May. If you're not in a small group yet, you might go online to northwood.tv slash small groups, check and see if there's any openings left. I'm not sure if there are, but it's worth a shot. And if you're in a small group, I really want to encourage you to participate, to lean in, because it's in those conversations where we're going to flesh out some of these ideas that might seem a little bit complicated at first, uh, but you're going to have an opportunity to ask questions there and just talk through things. And it's a really big deal. So make sure that you're as you know, consistent as possible. However, one of the other cool things about this group is if you miss a week, it kind of doesn't matter because it's not like you're missing a big part of the series. We're just going to pick back up next week. So participate in small groups. And the other thing I want to encourage you about is in regards to leaning into the word of God while we're doing this. You know, I noticed some of you have got your Bibles on your laps and maybe some, you know, journals for note keeping. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, you know, it's not weird to bring your Bible to church. I, I want to encourage you guys, bring your Bible to church. Write some things in the margins. Underline some words. Circle some things that stick out to you. If you'd like, take some notes. Um, but, but this is a time for you where when we go through this series, where you can really begin to get some clarity about what God's saying in his word and what that means for you in your faith journey. And the only way that you're going to really benefit the way that you have the potential to benefit is if you lean in. And I'm going to ask you to lean into 
today, as a matter of fact, because I'm going to give you a lot of content. I'm going to talk to you about a lot of different things, and it could seem a little overwhelming at first, but I can assure you, if you'll lean in, um, while some things may not go completely over your head, they'll, they'll hit you right here, and uh, it, might, it might you know, feel not as easy to, to take hold of some of these things, but uh, I believe God and his Holy Spirit are going to help make these things clear to you so that you can own them. Um, First two chapters of, of Romans over the last two weeks here at Northwood Church, we, we preached. And, and in those two chapters, Paul defines the good news of Jesus and what that is, but not without making us very aware of some bad news. Now, we learned that we are unrighteous. We learned that we're completely out of alignment with God. And that's hard for some of us to accept that reality. Now, he spends a lot of good, a good amount of time making a case for what feels like against us. But we know that when it all boils down, he's really trying to help us. And he wants us to be sure that we understand something very important, that the good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. So without us understanding how unrighteous we are, it's difficult for us to understand how righteous God is. Now, last week, we remember, if you heard the message, if you didn't, you can go back and listen to it online. We were in the courtroom as defendants, and we heard about the law, and we learned that the law really shows us the standard of God's righteousness and how we fall short of that standard. Now, God, fortunately, I'm just so excited about this reality, is that God is rich in grace and mercy. And he placed himself in the person of Jesus to take our penalty and condemnation for that which we've already been indicted, tried for, and found guilty. We've already been found guilty. We're all guilty in this room, apart from Jesus standing in between us and the just judge and, and, and taking on him our own judgment. So that's what we saw last week. Now, as we read today in chapter 3, You'll notice it's as if Paul's really perceiving a hypothetical question or multiple questions that may arise about the gospel principles, those doctrines that he's already been teaching us through the first two chapters. Paul expects his hearers, especially those who are of a Jewish background, the believing Jews, those who believed in Jesus but still had Jewish tradition and, and experience, he expects that those would have questions about this Christian teaching, such as uh, Christ's righteousness, questions about Christ's righteousness, questions about God's grace for those who do and judgment for those who do not put their faith in Jesus. These are really big ideas that Paul's taught us about. And some of them are hard to own and he wants to help these hearers, including you, sort through those things. Now, chapter three, Paul, he's essentially undoing what the Jews have really known for thousands of years. So like, get this image in your head. If you've learned something your whole life and your parents knew that same thing their whole life and their parents' parents knew that same thing your, their whole life and it was handed down to you generation after generation that would be sewn into your heart pretty deeply. Well, that's what's happening with his audience. And so he's going to undo some of those things that they already believe and that's a big deal for the Jews. So it's a big deal for Paul and he takes this matter very seriously. This is... Um, this is really Paul flipping the script on the Jews and giving them more clarity about Jesus. Now, Paul uses their holy scriptures, the Old Testament. He uses those scriptures to show them 
and remind them of their unrighteousness and ultimately against the backdrop of their unrighteousness to remind them of God's righteousness and then finally their need for Christ and his righteousness because we know that Christ is the solution to sin and his audience, his hearers needed to know that same thing. Now in the first eight verses, Paul presents a hypothetical dialogue. I kind of started to mention that. And he addresses questions that Jews who may have been, whether they were critical or skeptical, maybe they just weren't sure, they were kind of riding the fence about what Paul was saying, or maybe they just genuinely were curious and had sincere questions about these concepts, these truths that Paul was bringing to them. Whichever you know, angle they were looking at Paul, Paul wanted to bring them some answers. It was kind of an apologetic approach to presenting the gospel, right? Giving a reason for the faith that we have. That's what apologetics is. So, have you ever done the same thing? Have you ever been getting ready to go into a conversation and you're like, man, this is a big deal. This conversation, it, it matters. And you're getting ready to, to maybe go to that meeting or receive that call or make that call. And you're just thinking through all the angles of the things that could come up in that conversation. And you're like, man, I, I, need, to, I need to be sober in this. I need to be serious about this. And I need to think about the things that they might ask so that I can give them an accurate reason for why I believe the way I believe. This is really what Paul's doing. You guys can relate to that. Now, Paul does this to show them ultimately that any way you cut it, Jesus is the way. That's what this all boils down to, isn't it? That's what the gospel's all about. And the first part um, in his dialogue with the Jews grows out of the, the close of what we taught last week, the close of Romans 2. And if you didn't get to read Romans 2, go back and read it. And it's in this section of the scripture where the apostles answering, uh, where, where the questions are being asked that the apostle Paul wants to answer. And these questions are really still being debated today in Israel and all over the world. Um, what is it that really justifies someone that makes them right with God? What is it that really qualifies somebody to be considered in the faith? And, and that's what... Paul is going to launch into chapter three with. So again, I want to re-anchor you to that reality that we were on trial last week, me, you, Jews, Gentiles, but Jesus stood in our place and we walked out of that courtroom scot-free. We, we were set free from the consequence, the, the condemnation of our own sinful nature because Jesus made a way and uh, he gave us a changed heart. Did you know that? He took our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh he made us born again by his spirit. And now we, as, as God's sons and daughters who have the spirit of God in us, we can cry out these truths. We can cry out, Abba, Father, we need you because, because of the work that he did. Now, Paul knows the gospel. Paul knows the gospel really well. But he also knows the arguments against the gospel because you've got to remember, Paul was a Jew, so there was a lot of controversy in regards to these new teachings. Well, Paul used to be part of that controversy. Now he's like, well, I was wrong. I, I really need to be teaching this way, right? He got saved. He's convicted by the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's like, this is what it is. So he knows both sides of the argument. And he's an expert case maker. Uh, he's very legal in his approach to things. And he makes a case for the gospel that is perfect, now, whether someone is asking him questions as a critic, as a skeptic, or someone who sincerely just wants to understand these things more, he has an answer. And Paul is going to teach about the gospel, and, and ultimately, through his teaching, he's validating the reliability and the necessity of the gospel. 
Now you can imagine Paul seeing himself in a conversation with some people that are like us in this church. Maybe he's talking to a church person who struggles to see past this compulsion to do works, to earn grace, to earn relationship with God. The self-righteousness is really what it comes down to. You can imagine him talking to someone who perceives that they deserve more than what they actually deserve because of what they've done or what they've given or how much they've applied themselves to study or, or how much they've served. Or That's who he's talking to here. And he's also talking to other people who just have to know. I got to know about this. And he's going to help them see through these things with a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works. Now, remember, Pastor Jordan mentioned in week one of this series, this contrast between these ideas of of condition and conduct. And what we need to remember is that if we focus on our conduct before God first deals with our condition of sin, then we are being self-righteous. We need God to deal with this condition of sin in our hearts. We need a revelation of who he is. And only he can give that to us. So what I thought we'd do is start before we get into the text and pray. So Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. Holy Spirit, we are asking that you would illuminate your word to us. God, that you would tear down any walls in our hearts and minds that would keep us from hearing from you. God, I'm asking that you would convict us by your spirit. God, that we would see what you're doing in our life right now, even in this moment, God, and that we would turn from whatever it is that is distracting us from you and that we would lean into you and all of your goodness and all that you have for us. We are expecting you, God, through your word to minister to us today. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 3. Some of you, like I said, have your Bibles if you want to crack open the Romans chapter 3, verse 1. If you've got your version app on your phone, that works too. Um, and in verse 1 of chapter 3, he begins to ask our hypothetical questions, right? And he says, what advantage, which is really a, just a value or privilege, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul's answer is much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now, I know some of you are sitting in your seat right now saying, hold on, let's not talk about advantage quite yet. What was that word I just heard? Circumcision. What's that all about? Most of us understand this idea of circumcision, especially through a medical perspective. But what we don't understand about circumcision is its spiritual implications and and, and what that means for us. Now, I can't deal with that today, but you need to come next Sunday because Pastor Jordan is going to preach an incredible message on this principle of circumcision and what that means for us today. I really want to challenge you guys to be here for that. But I want to ask the, the, the really the question that matters for today, again, what privileges are there to being a Jew? And Paul says there's a lot. Paul says you were entrusted as a Jew with the oracles of God, this, this word, this divine revelation from heaven, this infallible truth. God trusted them with his word and his promise. And because they were given more privilege by having given, been given his word, with that came responsibility. You know, for those that have the word of God, we have responsibility. Now they have the responsibility to protect the word and the promise of God. And that requires faithfulness to the word and to God. 
And the very next question that Paul presents is in regards to faithfulness. In verse three, he says, what if some of them were unfaithful? And we know that some of the Jews were unfaithful. Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? He says, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. And then he goes and he quotes from the Old Testament. And if you've got your Bible open right now, it won't show you this in your version app, but in a regular Bible, usually it's this segment of scripture that's separated out from the rest and it's kind of narrower and has quotations around it. And it's an Old Testament reference. You need to understand. And, and he refers to their oracles, their, the word from God, from what they've always depended on. And he refers to a man that wrote this psalm. And he says in the psalm, so that you, and the man's talking to God, so that you, God, may be proved right when you speak and that you would prevail when you judge. The man that wrote that psalm is King David. Now, King David is the king of the Jews. He was the leader of Israel. He was only the second king that Israel had ever had. So, so, we know that David was also a sinner, though. David was a broken man. He was even unfaithful. We know eventually that he was a man after God's own heart. He repented from the things that he had done that trespassed against God and against others, and, and he completely surrendered to the judgment or mercy of God, to God's sovereignty. He said, God, I did what I did and I surrender to your mercy. If you'll give me mercy, then I'll take it and I praise you for it. But if I have to experience judgment because of the things I did, I, I surrender because you're sovereign and I'll take that too because let you be true and every other man a lie. He said, God's will be done basically. But it begs the question, doesn't it? If King David, the leader of Israel, and all of these other Israelites, these Jews, were unfaithful, does the, their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness and promise? Does it, does it render God's promise now irrelevant? And what did Paul say? Not at all. Not at all. People's unfaithfulness, it cannot cause God to go against his word his bond, his covenant, his, his promise, his nature. It can't cause that. We cannot influence God to be different than he is. He's true to his word. He's just in his judgment. And you can bet that. You can put money on that. Like I'm not advising you to, but I'm just saying, if the casino shut down all the, all the sports books right now, and they were like, hey, we're going to bet on whether or not God is faithful, we would clean up. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't cast lots. Verse five, he asks another question. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? He says, basically, he's like, if, if, if because of our unrighteousness and our brokenness and our sin nature, if because of that against the backdrop of God's perfect righteousness, God is seen to be more perfectly righteous, right? You know how like, you know how like something that, that isn't just so when compared to something that is just so, that thing that's just so looks a whole lot more amazing, right? Because you see this comparison. This is kind of what this guy's asking. Well, that, then they say that God is unjust. And what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. And Paul says, certainly not. If that were so, how would God judge the world? See, Paul knows his audience may question the justness of God. Is God really just? 
But Paul makes a case that presents how God is perfectly just in all of his ways. That's what we've been experiencing. He'll continue to make that case throughout the rest of the book of Romans, throughout the entirety of the Bible. It's, it's a presentation of God's character, and, and, and we need to understand that God is perfectly just. Now, whether or not someone can accept that God is just in his judgments doesn't change the fact that we must trust God and remain submitted to the sovereignty of God. See, God is who he is. And just because we can't quantify or calculate how he does things, the the Bible says his ways are higher above ours than the heavens are above the earth. Now that doesn't make life easy. It's not easy when you experience tragedy. It's not easy when you are in the midst of crises. It's not easy when life is beating you up and things are difficult and, and, and you can't see a way through it and somebody just comes to you, well, hey, brother, you just got to trust God. It's not easy, but there's some truth in that. Hey, brothers, hey, sisters, we do just have to trust in the sovereignty of God. He's faithful. He's always been. He always will be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, Paul isn't finished with this hypothetical Q&A. <laughs> we love a good Q&A, don't we? It brings clarity. Verse 7, he asks again, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good might result? Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And Paul's response seems reasonable. (laughs) Their condemnation is just. If when we do bad, basically, God is made to look even better, let's continue in our badness. It doesn't make sense. Obviously, That leads to anarchy, rebellion, and lawlessness, not just in our own hearts and lives, but even in society. If that pattern of thinking is true, then no one would ever choose good because we live for God's glory. So anything we do to lift him up. Now, some people think like this. I love God. I can do what I want to do, even if he's against it, because he'll still forgive me. That's amazing. I do bad stuff. He shows me grace. I didn't give God glory for being so gracious. And I'm off scot-free. This is a good deal. This is really awesome, isn't it? Nobody in this room would say that, right? But what if I told you that I think the way that we live our lives oftentimes says that. The way that we make decisions and align ourselves around certain circumstances says that about us. You know, this is really more of a hedonistic worldview. Hedonism is this. It's when you have a pursuit of pleasure, sensuality, or self-indulgence. So when we overindulge in anything that we're looking for fulfillment in that only God himself is intended to fulfill inside of us, whether it's overindulgence in food, alcohol, physical intimacy, relational intimacy, leisure, entertainment, 
etc., etc. Even things that seem good. If we're indulging in those things to a degree where they cause us to be fulfilled by them rather than by the God that gave us them, we are living in a very hedonistic mindset. It's not Christ-centered. And really, people who think this way will likely fall into the trap of abusing God's love and grace. And this is the most sobering part of the whole thing. Paul says that they will be condemned by God and he's just in doing so. This should cause us to cry out to God. God, would you search out my heart and find anything in me that's wicked, that's turning my heart away from you and take that opportunity to turn your heart back to him. We should be sober in this. It's very real what Paul's talking about here. Verse nine, what shall we conclude then? Another question, do we, and Paul says we because Paul's a Jew and he's talking to some of his Jewish believing friends that are at Rome, right? He's not you know, disregarding the Gentiles. He's also talking to them, but he's using this, this you know, conversation to really help the Jews see through some things. And he says, do we have any advantage then? Do we have a privilege? And now he says this time, not at all. We now actually have a level playing field in regards to sin and righteousness before God. We all have already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles alike have been indicted. We were in the courtroom, right? And all are under the power of sin. Now he's talking about apart from Christ, but he's talking about this reality that humanity is depraved. Depraved. In Psalm 51, King David talks about from the moment of his conception, when the When the egg was fertilized, when God first breathed life into that baby, from that moment of conception, when he became a person, he was in sin. Because this is the inherited sin nature that we all have under the power of sin. Now in verse two, Paul answers the question that was asked, which was then what advantage has the Jew? And, and And in verse two, he said, well, the advantage is much in every way, right? Why is it different now? Why is he saying now when asking, do I have an advantage? Is he saying, no, not at all. It seems kind of contrary, doesn't it? Well, it's not because verse two was referencing the privileges that were inherited by the Jews as members of the elect nation of Israel. They were given the word and the oracles of God. They were given the truth of God to hold on to, to steward. And that is an advantage, In every way, wouldn't you consider it an advantage in regards to your eternal security if you were first given the word of God before someone else? Of course it's an advantage, but he's not talking about that here. See, in verse nine, what we just read, he says, no, not at all, because it relates to their unrighteous standing before God. He's saying basically privilege or no privilege, Jews and Gentiles are in the need of God's grace equally. All of us. Whether you've been here your whole life, you were born into a Christian home, gave your life to Christ and confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior at a young age, or you're in here for the first time today and you're only on the edge of giving your life to Christ. You and I, that person and that person, the person that's sitting next to you uh, that might be an adulterer, that might be a dope addict, the person that's sitting next to you that, that might be a thief, you and that person need the same grace of God. It's a level playing field. No privilege. 
Verses 10 through 20, if you're following along, we're going to skip those today. But basically what it says is he goes on to describe what it looks like to live under the power of sin. I was just, you know, that was in the last verse. All are under the power of sin. This is what, what it looks like. And uh, basically he demonstrates the fruit of unrighteousness. And again, he uses Old Testament scriptures, the oracles of God, to, to show them their own unrighteousness. And... Very convicting. You ought to read that. Uh, and at the end, he also mentions no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Works of the law, your works, your efforts. That's not what makes you righteous. And then he also mentions how the law makes us conscious of our sin. But we'll be dealing with those things in a couple weeks. You'll hear more about that. I'm not able to crack that open for you right now. I know you might have some questions, but just hold on to those questions. Let's, let's focus on what we're focusing on today. Verse 21, Paul shifts gears a lot, a little bit. He says, but now, but now, major shift, major trajectory change here. But now, because he just spent the last two and a half chapters helping us see God's righteousness and faithfulness and his perfect judgment and his pure wrath and his, his seemingly irresistible grace and his unconditional love. And, and he shows that against the backdrop of all those aspects of who God is and, and God's character and his nature, how we're unrighteous in comparison. He makes two and a half chapters to, to help us see that. But now, but now, in the next two and a half chapters, he takes a new tone with us and he shares the remedy. And Paul begins to point us all to Jesus. So verse 21 says, but now apart from the law, real quick, apart from the spirit of the law, that's not what he's talking about. We're still we still have the spirit on us that bears witness to God's righteousness and his law in our hearts today. And we live according to the spirit of the law. He's talking about apart from the works of the law. I just said that we can't justify ourselves by works. So apart from that law, which is what many of these people who he was talking to lived by, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. And this is one of my favorite things about what Paul's talking about because Paul was a Jew himself. And he's looking, and imagining because he hasn't gone to Rome yet and he's looking forward to going to Rome. But as he writes this letter, he's saying, my brothers and sisters, their eyes haven't been opened yet. My eyes have been opened. I have seen what the law and the prophets have testified to. And the law and the prophets, the Old Testament oracles and word of God, they all point to Jesus. And in chapter nine, Paul even goes on to say, he says, I wish that I could be cursed and cut off so that my brothers and sisters could be joined with Christ. We're going to hear about that in a number of weeks. Now, verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now, faith is simply complete trust in or surrender to. So, if you are completely trusting in and surrendered to Jesus Christ, this is whom the righteousness is given to. Now, don't get me wrong. We have ups and downs in regards to how we express our faith. I don't want to put you in, in shackles here. We're going to have days where we experience doubt, etc. But the reality of it is when we have put our faith in Christ, and you're going to hear more about that, what that looks like in just a minute, man, he, he pours his righteousness out on us and he changes things. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. Whether you're the Jew that first received the oracles of God, the teachings of God, which is kind of like people who have grown up in the church that have been exposed to the word their whole lives, et cetera, et cetera. Or 
You're the Gentile and you're just hearing this good news for the first time, which may be for some of you in this room. Maybe you're just hearing about these things for the first time. You're watching on Facebook Live. You're watching on a cable broadcast and you're just hearing about this truth for the first time. He's talking to both of us. He's saying there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. I feel like we've heard that before. I feel like Paul's really talked to us about us having fallen short <laughs> in the past. And here he is again reminding us that we're unrighteous, but all are justified or declared righteous freely by his grace. If you're reading along with me, underline that through the redemption, underline redemption. That means that, means that the Greek word from that talks about somebody who goes to a slave market and buys back a slave that's for sale, but not to employ them in his, in his you know, estate, but rather to free him. That's what redemption is. Buying back with the intent to free somebody. And how are we freed from the bondage, the slavery of sin and death? It's in Christ Jesus. The redemption came by and in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at that word grace real quick. Spell it out. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. What are God's riches? God's riches are salvation. God's riches are his presence. It's an eternal inheritance. It's becoming a co-heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. It's his favor on our lives. It's his blessing on our lives. It's everything that God has promised for us, God's riches, but it's at Christ's expense. We didn't pay for a thing and you can't, you can't earn it. It cost Christ everything. What did it cost Christ? What did God's riches cost Christ? Well, in verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice. We're reading from NIV right now, but other translations actually put the word propitiation right there, which is from this Greek word. I'll explain it to you in a minute. The sacrifice of atonement, another word you'll get some explanation on, though through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, propitiation, it's a sacrifice that satisfies the offended holiness and wrath of God. Our unrighteousness offends God's holiness, and it warrants a judgment but through sacrifice, propitiation, we satisfy, or a, it is satisfied, God's wrath and judgment is satisfied. Now, I'm going to tell you how that happens. Now, Gentiles or pagans understood propitiation as many worshipped pagan gods through sacrifice. So they get this concept. So paganism could be described basically as man trying to satisfy the wrath of God through sacrifice. That simple. And they would burn a virgin woman or they would burn a baby in order to appease the gods. That's what they would do. Now, the Jews would recognize propitiation as the way to fulfill the requirement of the law. And Jewish law keeping was an instrument given by God to his people. This wasn't something that the people created to reach God. It was something that God gave his people so that they could be made right with him. And it satisfied the wrath of God and covered their sins through sacrifice. Now, the Greek word for propitiation, I'm giving you a lot here, I know, but this, this, these concepts matter. It's the equivalent of a Hebrew word that, that was used to identify the place where the high priest, the, the, the one who was responsible for spiritually leading the nation of Israel back in the right relationship with God, the high priest 
would sprinkle the blood of the slaughtered animal on the day of atonement on the specific place. And propitiation talks about that place. It's called the mercy seat. And the nation of Israel made sacrifices by spilling the blood of spotless and pure animals on the altar to make atonement for the sins of the people. So you get propitiation, I hope. On to the next word, atonement. What does that mean? You don't have to remember these words. The concepts are more important. Atonement is this. It's a Hebrew word that means to cover, to purge, or to make reconciliation. Atonement covers sin. It purges sin from a people. It makes reconciliation between a sinful people and a holy and pure God. Reconciliation is simply taking something that is not in line with something else and making it in line with that thing. So we've been reconciled back to God in the old Testament, we see that we were reconciled back to God through this, this system of sacrifice. But we're going to hear about what Jesus came to do in order to fulfill the law once and for all. Now, this is foreshadowing all of this. This whole system points to what Christ accomplished on the cross. So what do we mean? What did it accomplish? What did sacrifice and atonement and propitiation accomplish? Well, let's read Verse 25, the second part of it. He did this, not you, he did this, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance or patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, even now in this moment, as you sit in the seat that you're sitting in at this moment, God is demonstrating his righteousness through this. So as to be just and the one who justifies or makes right. See, all this points to God. All this points to Jesus. He's the one. So what is our role in this? What's this last part right here? Those who have faith in Jesus He's the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Our role is not making ourselves righteous. It's not to justify ourselves. It's to put faith in the one who does that work. Your role is to put your faith in Jesus. So what does it all point to? It points to this. God demonstrated his righteousness in Jesus, who was perfectly and is perfectly righteous who is spotless and who is pure. Then God executed his perfect and just judgment and satisfied his own wrath by giving his own son as a sacrifice, this propitiation. And instead of him putting his wrath on us, those who deserve judgment for our unrighteousness, he puts his wrath on his perfectly righteous son, Jesus. He stands in the place. Jesus poured out his blood on the cross, covering or atoning for your sin and your shame and therefore reconciling us to God. And Jesus took your judgment on himself to spare you from God's judgment so that you would know God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And when you put your faith in Jesus, church, you're not putting your faith in these words, in these theological constructs. You're not putting your faith in this message 
the way that I'm bringing it. You're putting your faith in this message and this truth the way that God brought it to us. And this is the message that we are putting our faith in, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have salvation and we are made new creatures. And that is what you're putting your faith in. He wants you to join him in that. He wants you to be born again by his spirit. He wants you to join him in his death as you die to yourself. He wants you to join him in his burial as the old man is buried, just like we see in baptisms. As the old man is buried, the new man comes up and is fully alive, resurrected by the same power of the Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the grave. That's what he wants you to join him in. And when it's all said and done with, when this whole thing wraps up, because this, this life is very short. It's just a moment, y'all. And sometimes we focus on that so much and there's an eternity of time that, that goes beyond time that we really ought to be thinking about. And we focus on this, but when we reach the end of this, we're gonna stand before our maker and not only will we have been made new, not only will we have been justified, not only will we have been raised to the newness of life with Christ, but we will be perfected, have ascended to the place that Jesus has ascended to and we will stand with the heavenly father in all of his glory. We might even bow down. But he wants you to join him in it. And that's your decision. So why don't you guys join me in bowing your heads and closing your eyes? Because there's some people in this room right now that have not yet joined Jesus in this reality. They have not yet realized that it's not their works that make them a good person, but it's Jesus's work on the cross that makes them right in the eyes of God. And if you are sitting in this chair right now and you are realizing that that is you, you have not yet been made right in the eyes of God because you've not yet put your faith in the person and work of Jesus, now is your time. It's this second right now. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe this, this message in your heart. I'm simply a messenger. I'm just bringing you the message of God that we find in his word. This is the truth that you can put your faith in Jesus and he will redeem your life. He will forgive you. He will buy you back from the bondage of sin and death. But you've got to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Just say this, if that's you and you want this, you want forgiveness, you want salvation, say, Jesus, you are Lord. I believe you. I put my trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, while, while we're still in this posture of prayer, I want to pray for those that just joined the church just in this moment. They just became part of the body of Christ and for the rest of us. God, I pray right now that we would stop if we are living a life of works and that we would again surrender to your sovereignty, to the perfect person and work of Jesus and that we would no longer seek to do good in order to earn your grace. That we would realize that your grace is not only sufficient, but it's a free gift and that it comes by the gift that you gave us in your son Jesus on that cross. We surrender again, fresh and anew to that reality as your people, God, we lay down our filthy rags, our works, and we, with open hand, open heart, and open minds, receive the fullness of your grace. And God, I pray that everything that we do, as we love our families, God, as we go into our community, God, as we go into our workplace and into our schools, as we go 
to the grocery store and we're standing next to people, God, who may not know this reality about you, God, I pray that we would not just tell them because they need to know God, but we would tell them because we realize that we all need Jesus and that we now, as people who have experienced your grace, would minister out of the overflow of your power and grace, God. Change us. God, convict us. Convict us of a lifestyle of unrighteousness. Let us again lean into your righteousness. We thank you that you're faithful, that you're worthy. We thank you as we sing songs like we sung this morning, God, that that we're confessing this truth over our lives. You are faithful and you are good. And we give you all the praise and the honor and glory for it in Jesus' name, amen. Northwood Church is one church with multiple locations. Uh, We have locations in Gulfport, Wiggins, and Long Beach, and we'd love to see you there. If you enjoyed this message and want to get more info on who we are, just head over to northwood.tv. And once you're there, you can check out all our past sermons and all the things that we're doing in South Mississippi. And even to, to give to support those efforts of reaching more people, be sure to connect with us on social media to stay up to date with everything happening around Northwood Church. Thanks for watching. We hope to see you soon.